Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. This is quite a lineup we've got for you. We've got five expert panelists. On my screen, we've got Dr. Adam Sifu, professor, University of Chicago. We've got Andrew Foy, who's joining us from Hershey, Pennsylvania at Penn State. We've got John Mandrola, cardiologist, Louisville, Kentucky. We've got Tracy Beth Hogg, MD, PhD, epidemiologist, and now part of our team at UCSF. And we've got Zubin Damani, a Z-Dog MD, joining us from sunny California. Thank you all for being here for this roundtable discussion. That's that's all I want to hear. Okay, so, so today's topic is going to be initially equipoise and the dilemma of randomized control trials. Recently this week, Rochelle Walensky... CDC director, got up in front of Congress. She was asked a tough question by one of the Republican congressmen. He said, why did you not, while you were instituting controversial masking policies around children, why did you not simultaneously run randomized control trials to gather better evidence? Her answer, I didn't have equipoise. All the emerging data showed that it was likely to be beneficial, and we as a scientific community lost equipoise. So today, we're going to talk about what is the concept of equipoise? How do people think about it? What are some of its strengths and weaknesses? Is it the only conception? And maybe we'll see where that goes. So first, I might start with you, Dr. Mandrola. You sent us some reading materials for today's session. I wonder if you might tell us, what does equipoise mean to you? And you know, what do you know about it? So uh, thanks. Uh, what, I, what, I, what I think of it is, is when there's not a consensus amongst experts, when people can argue on Twitter or anywhere about whether something's beneficial and there's equal amounts of vehemence on both sides, there must be uh, no consensus. And when there's no consensus, then, uh, then I think that's the place for randomization. And uh, I would just add that when I joined cardiology, uh, when I first started practicing, we were treating people that with, uh, after MI, after a heart attack with antiarrhythmic drugs. That was the consensus. Um, and it turned out we did that for almost a decade, and it turned out that it was dead wrong until there was randomized controlled trial. So my question, my struggle with equipoise and this lack of consensus is how many experts have to disagree? Does it have to be 50-50? Or what if like 1%, like the, the, like the contrarian in the, in the uh, you know, Gosh, I mean, so that's a, I guess I would pose that, pose that to the group, like how much disagreement does there have to be? You, we all know the difference between having hair and being bald, but when's that moment in time when you cross the Rubicon? That's a good question, John. So let me throw it to you, Adam. John is arguing a conception of equipoise that's about the field and the community. Is that how you think about equipoise? What's the role of the individual doctor? What's the role of the community? How do you think about it? Right. You know, the definition since I guess we go back from the 80s, right, is that the original Friedman article, yeah. um, which talked about, you know, con confusion sort of within the expert community. Um, I think John's point is is excellent. And, and you can't say there's equipoise if there's one, you know, crazy contrarian on Twitter saying like, this doesn't work, we can't <laughs> do it. Um, and I think that's where the role of sort of good observational studies come in, right? That's where you have something that points out, look, you know, it seems like there's a flaw in our practice. And yeah, this might be a confounded study, but it raises enough question to say this has to be explored more. And you don't need to convince the expert community that it needs to be explored more. You just have to raise 
you know, sort of reasonable doubt to say what we're doing is wrong and we need to go after this. Um, and to, you know, Walensky's comment, I think all of us agree. And from the look of Americans out there walking around, you know, <laughs> most Americans agree um, that there's equipoise on the masking issue. You know, that's that's really well put. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to I'm going to put it to you and I'm going to ask you just because there's equipoise. Do you have to do the randomized study? And are you a believer that you need equipoise to do the random? So it's a pre it's necessary, but is it sufficient? The mere presence of equipoise means you got to do it. How do you think about it, Andrew? Um, so, you know, I guess getting back to the just the equipoise point, um, and, and I'm uncomfortable with the notion of only if there's not consensus, because I guess I do um, feel that consensus is sort of easy to get in science, but most of the people that are involved with that consensus may not be like deliberately critically thinking about it. They're just sort of being led around by other people who they they sort of follow or are influenced by. So um, I think that, you know, whenever we can't easily answer a question about causality and there's high stakes involved, I think that's when RCTs are really needed. And I mean, I last week, John wrote that piece on sensible medicine about um, the, the Cochrane mask uh, meta-analysis. And I sort of, you know, I gave him a little flack for it after he wrote it because there was a sentence in there where he put, you know, hand washing, we're not going to talk about it because it's obvious. And I said, John, why'd you write that part? I said, you know, like, that's what the same people that are proponents of masks would say. I said, it's, it's more than that. I said, it's not because it's not obvious, you know, like hand washing is not obvious. I mean, I think there's probably more probably evidence for that than there is for something like community masking. But I said, I think the issue is that hand washing doesn't bother anybody that much. It doesn't change the relationship of sort of our, <laughs> you know, how, how we interact in society and of, of human nature in general. So that's why I think the masking issue was politically high stakes and why RCT was, was needed. But the same thing I think goes for medicines or other interventions. I mean, the stakes might be, might be different, but when they're important, you know, so for example, if, if money is involved from third parties and when economics are involved, all those things I think are important stakes. And if, if even a few people can make a strong case that this may not work, we, we, we shouldn't assume that it does. I think um, that's what I would say. All right. That's very well put. I've heard a few things. So one, I think you're articulating the conception that Steve Joffe, Frank Miller did in that 2011 article in the New England Journal, which was that equipoise is a misguided prerequisite for randomized trials. What you're saying is that sometimes that information is very vital. Despite a quote unquote consensus in the expert community, we may need to run the trial so we have information to inform policymakers. On hand washing, remind me not to shake your hand when you come back from the bathroom, but also on hand washing, uh, I'm going to defend you a little bit on that. Uh, by saying that, you know, we have these hospital campaigns to increase hand washing. Every few years, there's the hand wash police and, you know, they come around and shine a laser pointer on you when you don't put the hand sanitizer. And what I want to see is I want to see a cluster randomized trial, not of hand washing, but of efforts to improve hand hygiene and if that make a difference. And, you know, I, I have a kind of a pessimistic view, which is that short of near 100, short of 100% compliance, going from 75% compliance to 82% compliance and being nagged about it, I don't. I, I doubt that's probably going to make a difference. And to your point, so even while some people may say, of course, you want to have clean hands, 
and I do too, I actually do like to wash my yeah, hands. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. No, I no, agree. No, right. Okay, no, no. You agree. And you make an excellent point, which is that the burden is different. It doesn't impair our friendship, you know? But there are different questions about whether or not these efforts we're, we're chasing. Finish your thought, Andrew, if you want to say. I think I was finished. Okay, you're satisfied. Okay, now, tr- I, Adam, I jump in. Add, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that Andrew said that was so important and is really difficult about this is that when you think of what's proven and what's not proven and what you want to investigate, what you don't want to investigate, you know, it's, it's not just the efficacy of the intervention, but it's all the off-target benefits and harms. And you sort of alluded to the masking issue that, you know, there are harms in patient relationships, right? There's, there's harms in our communication. Um, and those are the things that you can't figure out unless you have some sort of experimental intervention um, where you can look at multiple endpoints. And, and yeah. not just that, but it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's quite an uncomfortable intervention. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I have a lot of sinus issues and it's, it's actually, you know, it's not a pain for me to wear a mask, but like, I don't re- breathe as well. It's, it's quite an annoying thing. I think there's people that they're not bothered by it. It's, it's really bothersome for me to wear a mask, you know, I, was so t- I think, there's, yeah. I think there's, a, there's just a lot of different uh, issues involved with that. Whereas I don't think that many people would say they're really bothered by hand washing sort of thing. I always tell people when I moved into my new office, I had to move boxes of books up five flights of stairs while wearing a mask. And if you think there's no subjective impairment, I promise you there is. And similarly, when it comes to young children and what are they losing? And, you know, people say, well, there's no evidence that, you know, making a two-year-old wear masks and only see people with masks will impair their language acquisition. I say, yeah, there's no evidence because as far as I could tell, no society was ever so crazy as to do that for a prolonged period of time. Okay, Tracy, you missed a bit of it, but we're talking about equipoise. I guess when you think about clinical studies, is equipoise on uh, your key consideration? How do you think about it? I mean, I, I think I, I weigh the, the level of evidence in the individual studies first, but I think, you know, getting back to equipoise, I actually think our, our understanding of that concept has changed over time. And even getting back to that Friedman article from the 80s, where, you know, he was kind of differentiating between theoretical and clinical equipoise. And he was basically saying, you know, um, you know, if there's disagreement in the field, then we don't know. And I think over time, especially with COVID, I think more and more people have realized the limitations of the observational studies that we're dealing with. And, you know, when we're specifically looking at masks, like talking about what Walensky was discussing, that our studies have been so incredibly confounded. And, you know, the, the, the fact that that's not being acknowledged and they're saying that there's equipoise, I think to many of us who evaluate medical literature, like it seems... It seems absurd because, you know, we look at the, we, we know we have the Cochrane Review of randomized trials that found that didn't identify a difference. And then she's citing, you know, including actually my own group study um, that was in, in MMWR that I was senior author on as evidence that masks work when we didn't have a control group. And so, you know, if you don't even have a control group and you're saying that that's evidence that masks work and there this was is another the Wisco- study Wisconsin in, study or the North Carolina the Wisconsin study. study. Wisconsin study. Okay. And then, you know, there's another study that was done in Norway at the same time where they weren't masking kids, where they had the almost exactly the same secondary attack rate in the classrooms, you know, and, and she's only looking at the Wisconsin study and she's not looking at international data. Like my question is, 
you know, when she says this in front of Congress, does she truly think that there is no equipoise, that the evidence is so strong? Or is this actually like government propaganda and she knows better? Okay, I mean, so I, so that's that's I think that's the right question. And I'm going to put gasoline on this fire because I think one of the things all four of you know, the, I'm going to put it to Z in a second. But one of the things all of you agree upon so far is that the behavior of experts, the behavior of the general public, the pre-existing evidence, the data that was generated during the pandemic all suggest that there is equipoise on one particular question, masking, community mask recommendations, etc. I think maybe later Adam can argue where he thinks the, the evidence is stronger. But here's, here's what I think. I don't think this. I'm offering this as a hypothesis for discussion. I'm going to throw it to Z. This is gasoline on the fire. I think they knew very well in March of 2020, the pre-existing body of evidence was abysmally weak and it was not standard practice to recommend masks. That's what they thought. That's why Fauci goes on 60 Minutes the first time and says, don't do it. You're going to be touching your face and it's just going to undo. You know, that's what he says. Six weeks later, he's got a different tune. What happened in those six weeks? I suspect that there's internal political discussion and they face an internal crisis, which is right now people are very scared and they're locking themselves up in their houses. And that's fine for all of us, for people who work in Twitter, for people who work in Facebook. But that's not fine if it's the people who work in meatpacking plants, the people who are truck drivers, the people who are Amazon Prime drivers. That's not fine at all if it's the cashiers at grocery store. So we need something to give to these people so they go out there and go to the slaughterhouse and go work the fields and then go kill those chickens and make sure we have food on our table and get gasoline in our cars. We need something. And even if this shitty cloth mask doesn't work, we need to offer it to them as a magic blanket so they do not abandon their post. Because if they abandon their post, we all sunk. Okay, so that's my cynical view. Z, hypothesis. I don't know that to be true. And actually, I don't know if I believe it. But what do you think? What do you think about that? That's why they said it. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think, first of all, the word equipoise is such a beautiful word. It just rolls off the tongue. And I think that um, <clears throat> this idea that uh, the government wants to give to some degree, people, a sense of control over something that is uncontrollable. And when people don't have that control, who are they going to blame? They're going to blame the government, right? So I think that ambivalence, I, I don't think you're necessarily barking up the wrong tree there. It is really interesting. I almost think it's irrelevant whether there's equipoise or not when you're looking at studying something, because most of the things that we do had a lot of uh, lack of equipoise for quite some time until they didn't. And one example would be like shaving surgical sites. Like now people are saying, well, you know, actually, when you shave a surgical site, it seemed like a parachute, seemed like something you just did because those pubes are gross. They're covered in bacteria. Well, it turns out maybe that's not true. Um but then the question becomes, <laughs> we start talking about equipoise as a requirement for studying things. They may say, well, what about childhood vaccines? Where whether there's equipoise or not, now people will say, well, now there is equipoise. Uh, the anti-vaccine contingent may say that. Do we need to go back and restudy all the things that have been looked at with childhood vaccines before we reach a level of community immunity that's going to prevent the next measles outbreak, say? So it becomes actually a practical question as well, how we how we think about these structures. All right, that's interesting. And you didn't take the bait on my gasoline. Okay, John, back to you. Equipoise, what are your thoughts? Yeah. yeah. My, my thought is, I really wanted to push back on what Adam said about having this observational research to inform whether or not we should do trials. I would argue the counterpoint, I would argue that observational research can be worse. Uh, observational data can be worse than no data because it can just mislead uh, mislead people because it's just so 
uh, flexible in, in, in what kind of results come up and so confounded. And I mean, I'm also struck by, you know, the, the observational research that's so, so made it so difficult to randomize patients in the, uh, uh, trials like the PCI trials and the, the uh, revascularization trials like Courage, people, the observational data was so overwhelming that this is terrible disease, it's going to kill you, that we didn't put patients in those trials, and we might have learned this data many years before. So I am a big, I, I'm an antagonist when it comes to using inf- observational tr- trials to inform us on anything causal. Well, let's let him respond to that, because I think there's two conceptions you're talking about here. One, observational studies to create doubt, maybe that's what he's talking about, versus observational studies that cement our pre-existing notions. So Adam, where do you think the role of the observational studies is? What do you think to John's point? Ah, you're muted, sir. You're muted, sir. I think I haven't outgrown that yet. So I think John is just throwing me under the bus here. (laughs) Um, Because he knows that I believe strongly that we should never base treatment on observational data. Like that is wrong, okay? Um, But where observational data is useful is I think when we are doing something, okay, which has no data behind it, you know, Swanscan's catheters, right, in the 90s, or NG tubes, you know, in the 2000s for GI bleeds, that we've done it forever. And everybody says, we can't do this in a different way. And then you have an observational study that shows you that, like, hey, what we're doing maybe not doing anything or maybe harming people. And that actually opens the door for people to study it and show that what we do doesn't work. Otherwise, you're never going to get data which says that things that we've adopted for no reason doesn't work. You're shaking your head, John. I guess yeah, you could, you could yeah, slaughter go goats and, and get the same kind of data like you well, say. You know? let, let me ask you something, John, on this question to Adam's point, which is, I mean, we want to have, we're almost talking as if two contradictory things are true. One, the mere fact they're running the study courage, the mere fact they're running cast must tell you that somebody doubted that this works because they wouldn't have even run it if nobody doubted it. And to Adam's point is, how did you build that kernel of doubt? But to your point, John, simultaneously, there's a lot of people in the field who are actively trying to sabotage your study. They, want, they don't want to enroll their patients. They don't want the trial to even be completed. So how do you reconcile these two things? What does it take to launch the study? It ain't easy. So there must be some doubt, some equipoise. Some people have some equipoise. Versus this saboteur, so the people who already think they know it. And where do you see observational studies in this mix? I think Andrew should comment on this yeah. because, you know, my argument is that, yeah, we did, that you, you know, you did cast, you did courage, but it took years and years and years. And, okay, cast was, cast, the antiarrhythmic study was incorporated, but I'm not sure we've incorporated courage and ischemia trials yet in our, in our frame. And so I, I'd be interested in, in others, what they think. I'll incorporate it the moment you stop reimbursing me for it. Okay, Andrew, yeah, how do you think about this? I mean, these are very provocative studies. Courage failed to demonstrate re- the benefit of stenting in stable angina. CAST failed to demonstrate routine upfront use of uh, class, what, 1C antiarrhythmics works post-MI. Uh, what do you think about those? I'm, I'm struggling to understand what their argument is about right here, to be honest. Um so, I think I they mean, do. I, I think they do agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, agree. I think so, too. Um, I mean, and I, I, I don't want to be one of those people that's like every observational study is shit because, you know, observational studies serve a role. I just don't think they're good tools when we're talking about, you know, comparing interventions and things like that. So wait, I mean, let, I me think, push, let me push let me push on that a little bit. 
Okay, yeah. so for prognosis, they're valuable. Risk stratification, they're valuable. Telling the patient the natural history, valuable. But for causality of interventions, are you saying they're... I mean, some people say they're not all shit because some are good. I mean, some actually, you know, but the thing about a coin is sometimes it's right by chance alone. So are you saying for any causal observational study, you don't trust it? Or do you trust the good ones that are done by Miguel Hernan, et cetera, et cetera? No, I mean, I, we, we, we shouldn't trust them. That's what I think. But OK, go on. Tell me why. Well, I mean, they're, they're just limited in terms of our ability to... Um you know, to assess causality, but they're subject, I think, to so many potential biases that um, just can't be corrected. Um, I mean, we wrote, a, I wrote a post recently for Sensible Medicine talking about, you know, the issue of um, uh, statin-induced diabetes. And, and for a long time, I mean, that's been somewhat of a controversial talk. Every cardiology meeting we go to, um, there's usually some session on statin-induced diabetes, and there's a, there's a pro and a con speaker. And, um, the reality is that the observational comparative studies, no matter what sort of adjustment techniques they use, always find very significant um, associations between between statin use and diabetes that seems to dwarf what the randomized trials say, you know, find it to be. And, you know, we, we applied a measure that we thought would, could potentially get rid of selection bias. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think there's debate about how valuable that technique was and what are, were their limitations to what we did. But just by doing that particular technique, I mean, we basically reduced what was a more than two times the odds of diabetes to, to no, no difference at all. Right. And um, so I, I do, I just think that there's, there's biases like that when it comes to selection and unmeasured confounding that uh, can't, unfortunately um, you can't get around. And, you know, I'm going to throw I this to Tracy. I know, I know, because I know I'm yeah. going to give it to you in one second, because I know we, she, she and I have argued about this in our meetings. Yeah. But uh, the, the other point to bolster Andrew's argument is that the FDA commissioned a project called RCT Duplicate, where they asked Sebastian Schmiedelweiss from Harvard to use the best available observational study to recapitulate randomized controlled trials. We're not talking about propensity score weighting. We're not even talking about your grandfather's multivariable analysis. We're talking about the best of the best, the target trial framework. And he failed. This is published in Jack this year. Uh, he failed to recapitulate those studies. So to your point, th that's what I think. Okay, but Tracy is a defender. She, she tells me she can separate good from bad observational studies. So let's make that <laughs> argument, Tracy. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, we have to, you know, distinguish, are we talking about an intervention or are we talking about describing like um, a, an event being caused by something else? And I think if we just look at like, it, we'll, we'll just keep talking about COVID because a lot of people are interested in that. But like, if you look at the studies of, you know, vaccine induced myocarditis, I mean, those studies were using observational data it's a very, very rare event. And so we're able to show that it deviates from baseline because it occurs very close in proximity to giving the vaccine. So you're able to show with great certainty, actually, that that is, is causal. You can never like 100% prove it, but we have so many studies now. No, that, and I think we all um, agree that's causal. So we yes. all, and then, so, so if we're talking about interventions, like we, we have different, you know, you can use like, for example, like a regression discontinuity design where you can really eliminate confounders. And I think, you know, again, going along with COVID, we have this great example from Spain where they used regression discontinuity looking at masking in six-year-olds versus five-year-olds. And you're able to show that there was no significant difference 
um, you know, in the curve that they show it was age dependent, um, you know, whether uh, how often they they transmitted. Um, and and so they were able to basically eliminate confounders by using this regression discontinuity design where the younger kids didn't mask and the older kids did. Um, and, and so and, and you trust that and that's a, and that's a good analysis. And so I trust yeah. that more then, you know, we also have this difference in difference analysis. We can talk about that. It can be yeah. done in really, it can be done really well if you don't have time varying confounders. But the issue is that you have to be really astute and be able to, you know, know when or when you might not have time varying confounders. Wait, I'll come to you. Yeah, John, in a second. So, but, so it depends. It really, I think we shouldn't discount observational. No, no, but, but let me draw but, two, two distinctions that you're raising. The difference in difference, I think you're talking about the Massachusetts, uh, the Massachusetts school study, study yeah, exactly. by, so. by the BU group. Okay, here's the distinction I want to draw. When it comes to harms, observational studies are generally more consistent with randomized controlled trials than when it comes to the efficacy of interventions. And this is a paper that John Unides did about maybe two, a decade and a half ago. And then among efficacy studies, studies that conclude an, an intervention does not work actually are recapitulated at a much higher rate than those that conclude an intervention does work for the simple yeah. reason that most of what we do don't work. Okay, yeah. John, a thoughts on Tracy's point, though? So I'm, at, I'm, I'm almost, I just want to raise more a question than, than, a, than an answer. But what, what I hear Tracy talk about and what I think about is like these natural experiments that occur in nature, you know, a, a five-year-old versus a six-year-old getting masked. And, and, and we're looking at natural experiments that sort of happen. They're almost quasi-randomized, right? And then, and then what the problem that we have in medicine with observational studies is, is the clinician is making the choice and the, the investigators can only um, adjust for the things that are in the spreadsheet. And so the, the problem is the choice isn't random. The choice is made by a clinician who he or she uses many different things and some of it doesn't go on a spreadsheet. But in a natural experiment, it's almost like a, a quasi-randomization. So that's just a question. No, you're to, right. To, so, to you so let's just put that in the context of what Tracy's saying. The Spanish study that she's talking about, regression discontinuity, if you're I believe four years and 11 months, or maybe five years and 11, I think they started at six. If you're five years and 11 months and 28 days, you don't mask. And if you're six or above, or like in the next cohort, you do. And so there's this nice, you know, that's a natural experiment because why am I five rather than six? You know, that's the regression discontinuity. So if masks do a lot, if you're six and you're wearing it, there'll be a lower R coefficient. And if you're five and you're not, they'll be higher. But what the study finds is it's just a simple linear slope and masks don't do anything. Um, so Tracy, do you draw a distinction between natural experiments? You know, Helsinki did one thing, the other city didn't, as a higher level of causal inference than the doctor just picking and choosing. Yeah. Okay. So, well, first of all, I mean, obviously masking kids isn't natural. I just had to say that. Okay, but anyway, well, yeah. um, like, stupid thing. Um, so I, I would actually say that there's another example that maybe wasn't quite the same sort of natural experiment, but I see what you're saying, John, that there's more bias if someone is making a, a, if like individual physicians are making a choice based on like their preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. But like, was this also like there was also a regression discontinuity study of vaccine eff uh, effectiveness in older people based on who got the vaccine first in the UK versus the group that got it second. And they were also able to show a reduction in severe disease among the group that got it first. And so it, I, I, I like what you're saying, because you're saying there's no sort of like conscious choice by the individual provider 
but it wasn't natural. I mean, it was a decision by the government that was made, you know, so so it's like, I, I, I like what you're saying that it's some higher level that's making a decision. And so yeah, there's I guess, no sort of opinions coming I into guess, it. I guess to articulate maybe what the definition would be, the definition is whether through happenstance or the arbitrariness of a policy threshold, like 75 and up versus 74 and down, whether mm -hmm. through happenstance or arbitrariness, there is a difference in the, how we treat two groups of people who otherwise are rather comparable. And we call that natural experiment rather than, you know, in my clinical practice, who am I going to give chemotherapy to with colon cancer? You know, not the person who comes in on six liters O2 in a wheelchair, you know, so there's that confounding by indication, I'm going to treat the healthier people. But then um, you yeah. could say that the, it was a natural experiment in Boston too, because they dropped like the mask mandates in like a- yeah. Go on. Districts and not, but but the only like di very different other districts. And uh, they compared so those two, and so they, you know, because there were so many confounders, like well, so that's the know, difference, they Tracy. Weren't, so they weren't the able to. It wasn't a good comparison. I totally agree with you, and I think yeah. the difference is that in the Boston study, the the districts that didn't that kept the masks were inner city urban districts full of the hyper ultra left wing maskers. And then the suburban districts drop the mask and they're really dissimilar in other ways. You know, like it's not like being 74 and 75. They're dissimilar in a million ways. Um, and that wasn't accounted for. OK, Adam, you want to jump in here and then we got to get to Z. This is like hosting the Republican primary. OK, Adam, jump in here. <laughs> OK, you you pass. OK, Z, you've heard the arguments. Settle the, settle the answer. <laughs> Well, the answer is there isn't one simple answer. It sounds like a continuum. And the one thing we have to weed out from all of this, which is clear from just even how passionate people are about making the case of this, is there's always motivated reasoning to find your answer that you want. What Fauci wanted was one thing at one point, and then it was another thing at another. And all he had to do was shift from equipoise to non-equipoise or vice versa in order to get the answer that he already had decided was the one they needed. So I think understanding how humans actually <laughs> are going to use this kind of uh, data and this kind of approach is going to be the first step to understanding how it's going to be misused, right? So I think there's probably a play. And I love this idea of this like natural versus unnatural motivated reasoning, uh, decision-making like I think what Tracy is pointing at is, and and I think John too, is getting as close to that, if you're going to use an observational trial, as close to that natural, non-human intervened right. uh, uh, distinction, you're going to get a little better data probably. But again, it's probably all a continuum. And I don't know anything about this stuff, so I'm going to shut up. John. So I want to ask Andrew and you and any others, there's probably people listening to this who are really uncomfortable with the idea of their therapy being chosen by random. So, you know, people have this notion that doctors know stuff and they, they, they want us to choose what they, what is best. And then here we're saying, and we're advocating for let the choice of this therapy be random, which, uh, which, you know, on the surface makes some people uncomfortable, but I guess I want to throw that out and, and how would, how would anybody else um, uh, answer that for a regular listener. Yeah. What do you say about that, Andrew? So I guess you're saying that people or individuals are would be nervous about getting randomized into a trial. And that's yeah, a, like that's a and that's a restriction or a limit on randomized trials. Um I mean, I suppose that that's true. I mean, for me, for example, you know, given my perspective, which is biased to the null, I mean, I wouldn't have that concern, but I mean, I suppose if individuals 
think that, um, you know, just by, you know, pathophysiologic reasoning is, is enough to support doing one thing over another. And there's enough people in medicine that, that support that, then yeah, that's going to be a hard problem to overcome. But the, 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 the big problem is that clinicians and medical scientists don't embrace uncertainty that exists. And I mean, we, we act like we have far more certainty than what we do when it comes to everything and, and enthusiasm, especially from sub sub specialists, I think is a, a massive problem. Um, if we're getting away from, you know, let's say COVID issues and getting just to like regular biomedicine stuff that we used to argue about five years ago. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that stand? What do you say, Adam, to the patient of yours who, yeah. How do you explain it? Well, I think also, you know, it, Enrolling in a randomized control trial for a patient is always going to be a bit of an altruistic activity, right? Um, you're taking some sort of chance. We may not know which treatment is better, but it's still a chance. Maybe no more of a chance than just being treated by a doctor. Um, but you're recognizing that you're spending some time and effort and maybe you know some chance of doing well or doing poorly for the benefit of other patients in the future. Um, and even if we develop some system where, you know, all of our randomized controlled trials were, you know, a push button epic that patients could just opt out of, um, people still have to say, look, I'm doing this for other people. And I think we'll never get away from that. You know, that's well put. I mean, and then the other thing is to bolster this point. I mean, I think the survey data shows that patients would be happy to take drug A or drug B if their doctor advised A or B and the doctor truly didn't know whether or not A is better than B, but they'll be damned if they allow you to flip a coin to decide A or B. And so there is something psychological, you know, an aversion to being randomized. But I'll tell you, if you want to cure that aversion, you should read Adam in my first book, The Ending Medical Reversal. Because, I mean, in the process of, you know, doing the research for that book, that's what cured me, knowing how often... The thing that people thought would be the winner just didn't win. And the more you see that, you really do realize that sometimes people are truly, genuinely uncertain. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left, and I know Tracy wanted to talk about one more thing that I'm going to throw to her. There's a study that's making waves, and it's related to this topic. Paxlovid. Okay, we all agree here that the right number of randomized control trials for NIAID and CDC to run on masking shouldn't have been zero, which is how many they did. It should have been a little bit higher than zero. I think zero was the wrong number. Maybe one, two, 20, might be better than zero. Okay, but what about Paxlovid? It's an unusual drug product. It has a randomized control trial, EPIC-HR, showed a dramatic reduction in hospitalization and death if you're unvaccinated, have never had COVID, and have a risk factor for progression. It works wonders in that group. 8% hospitalization dropped down to 2%, massive effect size. But what if you're vaccinated, double boosted, triple boosted, and had COVID twice? Does it still work the same? And the answer is we ran a trial in vaccinated people, EPIC-SR. It was null. It's a negative study. Um, we ran a trial of Paxlovid for pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's a negative study. We ran a trial of Paxlovid in people sick in the ICU on event. That's a negative study. And we have an ongoing randomized trial in the United Kingdom, Paxlovid and all comers. Meanwhile, this administration shelled out $10 billion on Paxlovid. They're passing it out like Skittles. It's the mask of, it's the new mask. It's the thing that makes you feel good about getting COVID. Um, there's a recent observational study in Lancet Respiratory Diseases, and it compares in Colorado people who received Paxlovid to those who did not receive Paxlovid. And it has some, it was tweeted by uh, Eric Topol, who has maybe gotten a few things wrong over the years. Uh, and, and Tracy and many others pounced on the fact that there's some limitations of this study. Tracy, you want to talk about this study and what do you think it shows? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, immediately when people look at it and they look at the survival curve and they're looking at um, the all cause, they actually looked at all cause hospitalizations um, that the that survival curve that has been going around on on Twitter, and they immediately found a benefit of Paxlovid over no uh, over no treatment that occurred on day zero. And day so zero. everyone is day zero. And so everyone is looking at this saying, how can and it's like the 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 it's equal, like the largest amount of benefit like occurs basically immediately on day zero in the trial. And then and it are, doesn't are, are you saying that's happen. implausible? Paxlovid works so, just yeah, that, I, that quick. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's implausible that it's going to work like immediately if these are truly all non-hospitalized patients because they would need time to get it and then get to the hospital. And, um, and so, I mean, there, there are many, many flaws with this study, but, um, but it, it, it brought up the point of this concept of, of immortal time bias that I just wanted to discuss because I think it's a confusing name where everyone's like immortal. What does that mean? But like, basically um like so they're including people um in the trial like before it's decided they do or don't get the treatment and so the people who were included in the non-treatment arm got included and then you know weren't eligible to get the treatment because they were already in the hospital and so um so basically on day zero you could already be in the hospital right after you got your SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis but you then you could not get Paxlovid. Um, and so that's what created like this huge discrepancy, health discrepancy between the people who didn't didn't get it and the, you know, the people who were um, hospitalized and didn't get hospitalized. And you can see it also in all cause mortality. You can see these are just very different people who did and didn't get Paxlovid. And so it's this is a well-known phenomenon when basically um, your x-axis, when what you're looking at um, they're they're looking at the SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis and they're they're not looking at the time since you got the treatment. And so the, the first time this happened or was really well described was in the 70s with heart transplant. And John probably knows about this, where um, basically they they did a study of what how effective heart transplant was for on, on uh, in terms of survival. And they included the time in the survival analysis from the, the time the patients were waiting to get the heart transplant to the time that they got it. And so the patients that actually survived long enough to get the heart transplant looked like they did better because they just had a longer survival time overall. But the secret was they actually were just the survivors and the ones who ended up getting the heart transplant so let at me, all. Let and me so take a crack is, at, that's, at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, I mean, I think it's the most important, you know, there's three categories of biases in observational studies. One is confounding, which we talk a lot about. Two is time zero problems, which guarantee or immortal time bias is. And the three is the number of multiple hypothesis testing. Let's just talk about this guarantee time bias. I think it's probably the single most important category. And immortal time is defined as time in which one group cannot experience the event of interest. They just cannot have it happen. And one thing that cannot happen if you're the group that ultimately gets Paxlovid after you test positive is you couldn't have died before you got that Paxlovid. You couldn't have been hospitalized and put on a vent before they gave you Paxlovid. And the time, that time is guaranteed to one group, but it ain't guaranteed to the other group. And you have a great example with heart transplant because in, once you get transplanted, you had to have lived long enough to get that heart. Another classic example is tamoxifen and amenorrhea. They did a study of people who took tamoxifen 
And they said women who develop amenorrhea, like they lose their periods, do better than those who don't lose their periods. But what does it mean to have amenorrhea? No period for six months. So if anything happened to you in the first six months, you could not be in the amenorrhea group, right? So that's guarantee time. So guarantee time plagues this literature. Um, uh, who, wants to, who wants to jump in on this? I think it's a bit, I mean, I think that's why that paper is trash. I mean, yeah, in addition no, to I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, can, I don't think I can make it better. Just another example for the audience is, you know, doing something like bypass surgery after patients have a heart attack. I mean, this is something that is fought about in cardiology a lot that cardiothoracic thoracic surgeons want to wait longer because the literature shows that the longer that the waiting period is before surgery, the better the patients do. And it's simply because if you survive long enough, it means you're working with a much better uh, substrate. And I mean, we've written about this and it really plagues this, this, this issue bad to, um, but yeah, it's all over. I mean, it's all over the place. So I have a question for Adam on this topic. Okay. And that you can, which is you've been practicing since, you know, the nineties. I really think we've learned nothing. Have, are we any better at evidence-based medicine in 2023 than we were in 1993? Are we just the same, clinging to observational studies? This is Nurses Health Initiative all over again. It's true. I, we, we may be going in the wrong direction at this point, right? And I think that was your sensible medicine point today, your sensible medicine post today, um, which I thought was actually a remarkably kind sensible medicine post um, because you didn't talk about um, what Dr. Topol's um, response to on Twitter was to people pointing out the immortal time bias, which didn't really make any sense. Um, <laughs> Tracy, I think it would be helpful if you were to redesign this study, um, how would you redesign an observational study of this point, which wouldn't have immortal time bias? And John's oh saying you God. can't do it. But Tracy, yeah, tell us how uh, you could do it. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm almost, I, I want to say I wouldn't do it. Um, but because I think oh. we've seen what a huge waste of money this was. And this should have been randomized all the time and effort that they put into it. Um, but I just, right. that, I do want to bring- that I abs- I want to bring up one point, which is so many of these hospitalizations and deaths that they're including in the study are incidental. Okay, so I I think that's another point that we're not discussing, which is, you know, if you look at over the spring of this past year, like we're up some day, some weeks, it's 90% of hospitalizations are with COVID and not from COVID. And so they made no attempt in the study to distinguish those. So I, and, and, and we, we know from Danish data that it's like 75% of deaths at this point are with COVID and not from COVID. And again, they made no attempt to distinguish that in the study. And so, so that, that was also a huge flaw of this study. But I mean, if I, the other thing that they just obviously did wrong was that they, they started, you know, the, the x-axis is really what they're looking at is, um, is the SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis. And they're not looking at the time from uh, when it was decided that they should get the, the Paxlovid versus not get the Paxlovid. So the fact that they did that, that's why they ended up with that crazy looking Kaplan-Meier curve, like, um, so they obviously did that wrong, but just to get back to my initial point, this was a very expensive study. It took a lot of time and effort and it was, you know, it was an NIH study and the fact that they didn't randomize it, there's no excuse for that. They should have randomized it. And Tracy, one more thing to your point is that many of the patients in this study, we don't have a PCR documented in the hospital. 
So the authors have to impute when they think they did their home test. And that imputation comes directly from their rectum. And that is also a problem (laughs) with their study design. Okay, Uh, John? Last point point on this, and I think it's a really important teaching point, and it comes up in cardiology all the time. The thing that this drug will do is reduce hospitalization. And they said that it reduced hospitalization, and Tracy made this point, and I pointed it out, but it reduced hospitalization, which the drug could potentially do by 55%, but it reduced all-cause death by 85%. So you can't, you can't, that, that just, all that means, it's almost proof that healthier patients uh, yeah. got the drug. And we see this in cardiology all the time. And I think when it, this is, you can just look at the table and figure this, figure out that there's a selection bias uh, confounding by indication here. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. Okay, I'm going to give you all a closing thought. Um, this has been, <laughs> this is this is a, an experiment. And listeners, you know, you can write in. We've done it with three panelists. We've done it with six panelists. We've done it with things in between. What format do you like the best? We're happy to do a rotating three. If you think that's best, we're happy to try to bring everyone on board and hear from people in a little bit here and there. Um, you let us know. You can uh, tweet, tweet at the Sensible Medicine account. You can also tweet at any of us on this thing. Uh, closing statements, and I think we'll start with, with the quiet man who's been on the corner the whole time, uh, Zubin Demania. What are your reflections? What, what, do, what are your closing thoughts on this issue? You know, the more I hear everybody, these very smart people talking about this stuff, it reminds me of my first course on evidence-based medicine, which didn't exist. Um, because they don't teach it in that way, right? And when I started learning about all the confounders, all the bias, all the things that can go wrong in trial design, all the motivated reasoning, it became clear that humans have no fucking business designing trials. Um, that's that's what I think. I think what we need is smart people like on this panel, except for me, designing a chat GPT AI that can design trials that eliminate most of the bias, and they're going to be randomized control trials, and that can look at observational trials and go, okay, here's everything that's wrong with that, and make a objective statement of and you know that gpt is going to have bias too but i almost feel like most humans are going to be out of their element or we have to transform how we train medical scientists overall in order to solve this problem because well, can like i just put said, an addendum on yeah. your your proposal because i mean i think you're really hitting on something very interesting which is that cardiologists you know they have a lot of preconceived beliefs on cardiology and, you know, nephrologists, nephrology. And a couple of years ago, Peter Gocha and I think John Yonides wrote a paper in the BMJ where they say the person who designs a randomized trial in cardiology should not be a cardiologist. They didn't think of chat GPT, but they said it should have been a methodologist. So are you really proposing that somebody, no skin in the game, disinterested, they're the people who designed the study? As best as you can find that person or entity, I think it's better because like everybody's pointing out, we have motivate. I mean, when your, when your salary depends on believing something, you're not going to believe the opposite, no matter what the data says, and you're going to subtly influence the data. So that, that's what it feels like. I think that's an excellent point. Tracy, I'll go to you. Closing statements. Yeah. Um, so I guess I, I want to say that I agree with Adam that we're going backwards in terms of our our ability over time to interpret um, scientific data. And I I think it gets back to actually what we were discussing in our last episode with the the bipartisan politics and uh, in the United States and sort of the divide that has been created also on social media and with people basically 
with there being sort of a, a religious and a feeling about um, different things having to do with COVID, whether it be masks or vaccines or um, different interventions for COVID. And so people have sort of, you know, lost their ability to think critically um, about, about these studies. And I guess what I, what I would say is um, that, you know, I, I would, that if it's an observational study, particularly that, that people need to assume that there's bias there and there's confounding and there's no substitute for going in and looking at the study on your own and then reading about the issues yourself. And I, I hope that that's one thing that comes out of this podcast is that people realize that they can understand all of this um, if they look into it enough and that we're all responsible as doctors to understand the evidence um, for our patients. Yeah, Eric Topol's not going to read it for you. Maybe he's not reading it at all. Andrew, closing <laughs> thoughts, closing thoughts here. Uh, yeah, so I, I think evidence-based medicine was slowly moving in the right direction. I think critical appraisal was getting slowly better, although there were still problems all over the place, you know, based on the legacy of how we did things. COVID um, has brought us back 20 plus years in evidence-based medicine. I think it's related to bipartisan politics, but only to one side. And I think people need to be honest about that as well and what the implications of that are for, for a lot of things in our life. And when you say only one side, you mean it's been, it's the left that's really gone against evidence-based medicine. I'll I'm going to let, I'm going to let you say that because yeah, I you say more it. influence than me. And, you know, I still need my job. Well, and I am on the left, but I know who screwed up school closure and masking kids and PACs live in and pay $10 billion. I know who did that. Okay, John Mandrola, closing thoughts. Uh, Jeezy, when there's doubt, and there's lots of doubt, just randomize. That's my closing thought. Randomize. So uh, Tom Chalmers famously said, randomize the first patient, and John Mandrola adds to it, and keep on randomizing. And I think it's actually... It's actually defensible because even when you solve one problem, there's another problem you could be randomizing and randomizing. And that's why pediatric ALL is a success story and because uh, they kept randomizing. Adam Sifu, closing thoughts. I think I'm going to underline both Tracy's point and John's point that in this case with uh, Paxlovid, with the amount of money that's going to be spent on the drug, it's really unconscionable to say we're going to spend money on an observational trial which is you knew at the beginning wasn't going to answer the question that we needed to answer. And it's very clear what the question is that needs to be answered. And if it turned out that it's not effective, you save all that money that we're spending on Paxlovid that's not doing anything. And, uh, the, and I'll just have one closing statement, then I'll, then I'll wrap this up. My closing thought is I think we were in a better place when there was a natural balance of power Trump was in office and all of academia and all of journalism was against him. <laughs> and all of, you know, because then we were critical of all the decisions. Everything they decided, they got criticism. But now they're all the same team. And, I, and to be honest, I'm on that team. You know, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. I always say that. But I'm on that team too. But now you, New York Times, uh, Eric Topol, the White House, they're all on the same team. And so there isn't that check and balance. And so you have a lot of people saying, yeah, it's totally fine. $10 billion, no randomized data and vaccinated people. It's totally fine. That's how we do things. And that's not how we do things. We stopped doing things like that 20 years ago because we had elevated ourselves from the Stone Age. And now we risk running back. Okay, this has been 
your Republican primary. We thank Rand Paul, Chris Christie, Marco Rubio, Donald Trump. Thank you all for no, but Adam Sifu, John Mandrola, Andrew Foy, Zubin Damania, Tracy Beth Hogg. Thank you for this uh, sensible medicine, sensible medicine podcast. The Super Bowl is about to start. I know who Andrew's rooting for. Um, audience, you let us know. You like six people on the panel. You like three people. You like two people. You like 20 minutes. You like two hours. Uh, text us, email us, uh, let us know. Thank you all for doing this.